You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Right now, would you guys please join me in welcoming uh, to Vineyard Church of Augusta, Nader Sihuni. Good morning, everyone. It's such a privilege to be here, um, and it's, uh, it has a warm place in my heart to follow Sam and Katie on the stage. Um, of course, there has to be the obligatory when Sam was a little kid joke. Um, so I'm not going to disappoint you. I'll tell you one. Uh, but then if you want more, you have to come to the workshop this afternoon. When Sam was a toddler, he used to love to climb things. And uh, he started by trying to climb the guitar sitting on its stand, and of course brought it down on himself. And then he graduated to climbing on shelves in the living room and trying to bring them down on himself. Uh, And fortunately he survived. But then at Target one day in the jewelry section, he started to climb the uh, jewelry case. And they managed to bring down the entire watch carousel on himself. Um, and by God's grace, we managed to get him to 18 um, alive and well. So I want to tell you about how I got here. How did I get to a place of talking about spiritual formation, psychotherapy, neuroscience, um, and particularly anxiety? Anxiety started in my family about three generations ago. Maybe longer, I don't know, but from what I know, it was about three generations ago. My grandmother lived in the town of Antioch. Yes, the same Antioch that's in the Bible. Uh, It is currently in Turkey. And it was a time before antibiotics. And it was a time of a lot of epidemics. And she lost uh, uh, eight out of 13 children. Um, Only five survived. And... That was, as you can imagine, quite a shock. She ended up developing a deep anxiety around illness. And any time any of her kids, her remaining kids, surviving kids, would get sick, she would get extremely anxious. Now, my mother, growing up in that environment, also developed that same anxiety. So that when we were growing up, if we got sick, my mother would get very anxious. I didn't even know I had an anxiety disorder until I started having kids. When I had kids, if they got sick, I would start to get really worried, and then the worry would turn to anxiety. If they sniffled, I thought they were getting bronchitis. If they had a cough, I thought they were getting pneumonia. If they had a fever, I was ready to go to the emergency room. Um, Thank God for my wife. She kept me from being a frequent flyer to the hospital. Now, what anxiety did is that it drove me to prayer, and it drove me into the arms of Jesus. And I noticed over the years that there are some types of prayer that are more helpful than others. And later on, when God called me to study psychotherapy and become a therapist, I started to see some parallels between the ways that I prayed that felt effective and modalities of psychotherapy that were helpful in treating anxiety. Then when I studied spiritual formation, and specialized in that, I learned about even more methods of prayer that I thought could go along well and supplement what I had learned in my own practice. Then there's something interesting in God's sovereignty in that um, I grew up in Beirut, 
so I came here as an immigrant. I'll tell you a little bit about that a little later. So I came here as four, at the age of 14. And um, like any good immigrant, I had to study science or engineering, you know. <laughs> and there was no option of studying anything else, and my parents wouldn't even hear of it. Um, and so I did. I studied biomedical engineering. And by the time I was a senior, I got connected with this professor who was very kind to me. And um, he asked me to join his, uh, in his research and gave me a full ride through my master's. He used his research funding uh, to take me on as a research assistant and paid for my tuition and gave me a stipend, which is wonderful. But then, of course, there's a catch to it. Obviously, I have to work on the research that he's funded to do. And he was funded to do uh, research on brain control of eye movements. So I was doing neuroscience. And to be honest, I wasn't all that interested in neuroscience. I was just doing what I had to do. I kind of thought it was boring. But fast forward 35 years later, um, as I'm uh, researching the book that I'm writing and so on, um, started to see that, oh, you know what? I can read and understand this stuff, and I can interpret it for lay leaders. So that's God's sovereign movement. So then that's how it kind of, uh, that's how the story comes together for what I'm going to teach today. I'm going to talk about my story a little bit, psychotherapy, spiritual formation, and neuroscience. When I wrote the book, I did it from three different perspectives. The perspective of praying about anxiety in the moment, praying about anxiety in the past, the root causes, or praying for anxiety to develop resilience, uh, praying in such a way to develop resilience against anxiety in the future. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you want to hear about the other two, if you want to hear about praying in the moment and uh, praying through the root causes and what, how God uses healing prayer and what happens in the brain and so on, you'll have to come this afternoon. But for now, once again, we're just talking about praying um, in order to develop resilience for the future. And uh, just as Reese said, we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us do that. I'm debating whether to ask, any, ask how many of you experience anxiety. I can tell you that one in five people experience anxiety on a regular basis. Um, so no need for a show of hands. But I will ask you this. How many of you who do experience anxiety or who have experienced anxiety have been told to trust God, that you need to learn to trust God? All right. And let me ask you, does that work when people tell you to do that? No, it doesn't work. So I want to talk a little bit about why that doesn't work. Because on the face of it, it's actually 100% accurate. We do need to trust God. And that would be very helpful. But that's the one thing we can't do, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be anxious. So um, when I was going through this uh, period of anxiety in my life, or at least starting to, I tried to research that question. How on earth do I get to trust God? And so I read this book by Jerry Bridges. Actually, I read a number of books. But this is the one that stands out in my memory because it was... Um, really good. It was, Jerry Bridges is a speaker for the Navigators, and he is very um, thoughtful, very logical in his writing. He presents the case. He says, we trust God because we know God loves us. We trust God because we know that he is all-powerful, and we trust God because we know that he is all-wise. It makes perfect sense. I couldn't agree more. The theological case is airtight. But why didn't it help me very much? I'm not saying it didn't help at all. It helps a little bit, 
But this was part of a journey that I went on. It's like, if I could understand God's sovereignty and how it interacts with free will, how God's sovereignty and the fact that he is all powerful, the fact that he does love me and the fact that he is all wise, how that interacts in a world where that's not, that's not obvious at all, right? Bad things happen all the time. So how do I put those two together? So I went on this odyssey of trying to understand God's sovereignty and how it works in this kind of world. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't all that helpful. You know, as I said, it's not that easy to learn to trust God by being told to trust God or by being told certain truths. And after 25 years, I realized that the reason this wasn't working is because I was learning to trust God through a very different route. I was learning to trust God experientially. I was learning to trust God by experiencing his love and experiencing the power of his answering, answered prayers, experiencing the fact that he is active in my life. And those experiences happen in a different part of the brain. You see, when I was reading Jerry Bridges and getting all that information about God's wisdom and God's power, et cetera, that's in the left prefrontal cortex, this area right here. That's where our adult logical thinking brain is. That's where the cognitive work happens. However, experiencing God and experiencing his love happens in the limbic system, the emotional brain, and in the right brain. Now, I'm being very, very simplistic here, simplifying a lot of neuroscience, and you know, I don't know even 10% of it, but um, at a very simplistic level, it's not the same part of the brain. And that's why when we hear those pieces of information, it doesn't quite work for us. Now, the interesting thing is it only takes 50 milliseconds for an emotion to develop and for something to develop in your um, limbic system or in your right brain, 50, millise uh, 50 milliseconds. For your cognitive brain to respond with a thought or a theological formulation, it takes 500 milliseconds. It's 10 times as long. So our limbic system and our right brain is much faster, much, much faster. And that's where we're gonna focus some of our work today is on how do we access this right brain and how do we access this limbic system in our relationship with God? Well, we get the answer, we, be, we begin to get the answer in Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15 says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We also see a very similar statement by Paul in Galatians 4.6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. It's important to understand the context of adoptions in the Roman world. In the Roman world, if a wealthy Roman or a powerful Roman, such as a senator or an emperor or some other wealthy uh, landowner, if they wanted to guarantee that uh, their inheritance, their wealth, their power went on to the next generation, they had to have a male heir. And because of the problems with um, the dangers of childbirth and childhood diseases, et cetera, at the time, it was an iffy proposition to get a male heir. And so what they would do is they had this legal system in which they would adopt um, an older child, sometimes a younger child, that could happen at any age, 
but it was very transactional. Okay, so-and-so adopts so-and-so, and that child is now adopted, their status completely changed. They could have been a slave, and in some, some instances they were. You know, when, once they are adopted, they have the full privilege of the father. They have the status, they have the honor, and they are going to be guaranteed the inheritance of that father. They get a new identity, and they get a position of uh, privilege. Now, this was so common at the time that you know, Julius Caesar did not have a male heir. So what did he do? He goes to his sister, and her grandson, um, he adopts. And so he his, grandson, his sister's grandson, um, his grandnephew, I guess, would be, uh, would be the next emperor. Uh, and his name was Augustus. That's by Julius Caesar, that's how we get the month of July. Augustus, that's how we get the month of August, in case you were interested. Um, a not-so-great emperor who was also adopted was Nero. Another one who was one of the um, more powerful Roman emperor, tr emperors, Trajan, was also adopted. So you can see this was something in, the, in, in everyday life. They, they understood adoption. But they understood it in very political terms. They understood it in very pragmatic terms. But what Paul is saying is so much deeper than that. What Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. And he says that in two places. Now, that's a very interesting term because it's a term of endearment. I'm sure you've probably heard this before. And we, they learned this, uh, Paul has this uh, from Jesus. Jesus used that term to cry out to God as Abba, Daddy. Not so much the more formal Father. And this is a departure from Old Testament times because in Old Testament times, you, there was a reference to God as Father, but never as Daddy. So this kind of adoption implies a certain attachment, a certain, a certain intimacy, a certain emotional closeness that I want to explore a little bit further. This emotional closeness is about something that sci scientists call attachment. Attachment science started in the 1950s, roughly, uh, there's a British psychiatrist, her name was Dr. Bowlby, and an American psychologist, her name was uh, Dr. Mary Ainsworth, and they were a great team. They, uh, they, they pioneered the research, and they started with um, the whole idea of um, how do we look at how babies attach to their parents. And before I get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how attachment can happen for um, adopted children. There are some adopted children who unfortunately are adopted before the, uh, out of situations where they have had very, very inconsistent caregivers, you know, shuttled between orphanages or uh, between foster homes and so on. And, and, and those very, very few situations where people have had very, very bad uh, situations before age three, there are uh, a couple of disorders that can develop later in life that are really difficult. One is called reactive, reactive attachment disorder, and there's another one um, as well that we don't need to get into that. But for the most part, parents who are adoptive are able to build the kind of attachment with their adoptive babies as their natural children. I was with a friend uh, who 
I have known for many years, and I uh, had known her desire to have children and not be able to have children. She adopted two children with her husband. And uh, I was with her at a conference recently. And we were doing prayer ministry, and we were doing uh, some training on assessments for suicidal ideation. And uh, she was in my small group, and when we were talking about that, uh, she started to cry. And it was because one of her children struggles with suicidal ideation. She felt the way a mother who uh, just cares about her child, adopted or natural born, it didn't matter. And when I called her to ask her permission to use her story, she said, well, on a more positive note, you can also say that I feel like I actually gave birth to my children. She feels that kind of attachment. And so this kind of adoption that we experience with God is not a, okay, I'll let you in kind of thing. It's a deep kind of attachment where we have an intimacy that a parent ha feels towards their children from God. And we can respond back with that kind of attachment, uh, with, with that kind of intimacy to God. C.S. Lewis uh, writes a story that you guys I'm sure are all familiar with, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. So these kids are sent off to the countryside because of the bombings of London during World War II. Bombings were pretty severe, buildings were getting burnt out, people were dying left and right, and so they, the British government created this operation where they would send off the kids to uh, the countryside so they could be safer. And so these kids in the story, the lion and the witch in the wardrobe, they go off and they live with this professor, I think it was, and they hide in his wardrobe and they discover the land of Narnia, et cetera, et cetera. There are studies, however, about these children and how well did they do? How well did they adjust afterwards? And it turns out that the kids who stayed with their parents in London, the kids who stayed in the middle of the destruction, the kids who stayed and watched buildings uh, get blown off and bodies in the streets, those kids actually did better psychologically. And I can tell you that from my own experience. When I was 11 years old in Beirut, the civil war in Lebanon began. Up until then, it was a fairly quiet, normal city. And um, when the civil war began, a number of things happened. Uh, I, I lived in it for about three years, on and off. And one of the things that happened is my uncle was kidnapped, and then they fortunately were able to negotiate his release. Uh, my father, on his way to pick up my sisters from school, was hit with a piece of shrapnel that went through his leg. Fortunately, thank God, he was okay in the, in the final analysis. Our home was taken over, and then we had to pay the people to leave, and then when we did, they took everything that they could carry with them. We ended up sleeping on deck of a cargo ship for three days and nights, escaping the fighting. Moved about six or seven times in about the three-year period. And in all of that time, you would think I was getting traumatized left and right. It was traumatic, I'm not gonna you know, deny it, but for the most part, I did not feel anxious or afraid. There were a few moments, but my father's presence, with whom I had a deep attachment, made it such that I felt safe. I knew he would take care of us, and for some reason, when he was there, I felt okay. When he traveled, and he had to travel for a number of reasons, it, then I didn't feel so okay. But when he was around, it was a very different story. 
One key aspect to attachment is that if you're not in that category of children who have horrible circumstances before age three and are shuttled from one caregiver to the other, and some are good and some are bad, et cetera, if that's, hopefully, God willing, you never run across that. If that's not you and you had attachment issues, the good news is that you can develop good attachment in the future. So what is good attachment and what is bad attachment? So Bowlby and uh, Mary Ainsworth that we were starting to talk about here, they started studying uh, babies in Uganda. And in Uganda, they noticed that uh, mothers kept their babies very close to them and as the child would grow, they would kind of scurry maybe a few feet, and then if they got scared or if they got hurt, they would cry, and then they'd run back to mom, and then mom would care for them, and they'd be okay, and then they would explore a little further. And as long as mom felt safe and they received what they needed from mom, they could explore further and further and further and feel secure. What they ended up calling mom or whoever mom represented was the secure base. As long as the child had a secure base, and we're going to come back to this term later, as long as the child had the secure base, they could scurry and come back and feel safe. And they could grow in their sense of safety, and they could be more and more adventurous and feel safe and not anxious. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. About 60% of situations, people have a parent where they can feel like that kind of security, like I felt with my dad. And then they develop that kind, a kind of uh, attachment that we call secure attachment. That's about 60% of the population. If the child comes to the parent or to the secure base and they don't get what they need, a few different options, um, a few different results can happen. The first one is something called insecure attachment. So if the parent is anxious themselves, and they are too distracted to give what the child what they need, or they're inconsistent in giving the child what they need, or the child picks up in their anxiety and they know that the parent's overreacting. All of these things could create insecure attachments. So they grow up, they go into relationships, and they don't feel really secure in their relationships. They need lots of reassurance. Another possible um, result is something called avoidant attachment. If the child comes to the parent uh, needing uh, care and the parent is dismissive, it's like, oh, they're just faking or they just want attention or whatever. Then the child grows up not really wanting intimacy or kind of trying to avoid it. And then the fourth kind of attachment is called disordered attachment or ambiguous attachment. And that's not fun because the child basically uh, is trying to get what they need from the parent and the parent is either abusive or the parent is so highly disorganized themselves that they're not able to give the child at all what they want. And so the child grows up and basically doesn't really have an understanding of what it's like to be in close, intimate relationships. The good news in all of this is that our brains can heal. Our brains are able to develop secure attachment as adults. You see, in God's grace, he made us so that your stomach is for you, your body. It's not going to process food for somebody else. Your stomach is for you. Your liver is for you. Your kidneys are for you. But your brain is not just for you. Your brain is for you and for others around you. Your brain shapes other brains around you and is shaped by other brains as well. And so when we talk about brains being shaped by each other, that's called neuroplastic. Well, it's a type of neuroplasticity. 
right? That neuroplasticity, that ability to change, allows us as adults to develop secure attachment, even if we didn't have it growing up, right? It's harder if you're part of that small percentage before age three, you know, with those severe disorders. But like I said, that's very, very few, right? For the most people, they can develop that. They can develop it either in the therapist's office, they can develop it uh, in a marriage, they can develop it in some other committed close friendship. That can be developed. And so my argument is, or my proposition to you is, how do we develop a secure base with God so we can have secure attachment with him? Well, the way that um, we study attachment is we look at something called attunement. Attunement is something that you see naturally in a park when a parent is with a child and the child gets hurt and they run to mom or dad and mom or dad comforts the child and maybe if they're prepared enough to have a Band-Aid in the diaper bag, they clean the wound, they put the Band-Aid on, go get them, tiger, you know, and send the child back out with some renewed confidence. All of that looks really simple, but there's some steps in here. If you break it down, there's a feeling of uh, being seen, being heard, especially knowing that your feelings are acknowledged and that your feelings are shared. You know that your parents like sorry to feel you in pain. You know that your parent is happy to be with you. They're not like, oh, geez, I gotta deal with this kid now, right? That does not get the message across, right? So the idea that I see you, I hear you, I can sense what you're feeling, I'm happy to be with you in it, I can take care of you, successfully communicating that to the child gives attunement. And that kind of attunement is what I'm hoping to convince you we can get from God. So how do we, Build attachment, well, it's attunement, uh, sorry, it's a challenge followed by attunement. Challenge, attunement, challenge, attunement, over and over and over again, right? Even a child can experience, uh, like a baby, sorry, uh, like when they're hungry, that's a challenge, right? And what do they do? What happens? They receive the care of the parent. They are fed. They're like, oh, you know, whatever cooing is needed, et cetera, right? There's an emotional connection that happens that gives attunement follow, uh, that followed challenge. So then you get that cycle over and over again, over months and years and so on, and then you build attachment over time. So when we come to God, we can do the exact same thing. Life is full of challenges. We don't have to manufacture them, right? We can bring our challenges to God. And we can talk to him about how we feel. And as we do that, we start to receive his comfort. And as we receive his comfort, that's essentially the same as attunement, right? And if we do that over and over again, day by day, it starts to build attunement. Now, I'm not talking about five minutes or 10 minutes. It is a, takes a little bit more than that. I'm talking maybe 25 minutes plus, but I'm not trying to give you a prescription here. And I'll talk about that in a minute as well. But that is essentially how we build, build a secure base with God so that our prayer time starts to be a time of building that kind of attachment. And that gives us a sense of security. And that is how I experienced less anxiety. I'm not saying this replaces therapy or medication or anything like that. You know, but I am saying that this is God's desire for us is to have us enter into this kind of intimate relationship with him by the Holy Spirit. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament theologian, um, and he says that the Psalms tell us that 
all feelings are to be put into words, and those words are, put, are to be brought to God. If you've read through the book of Psalms, all the feelings, all the broad spectrum of feelings that a human can experience are in there. And Walter Brueggemann says, this is primary lesson in bringing those feelings to God. Now, it's interesting that the Psalms have been used as a prayer book at the time of Jesus. This was the Psalms were Jesus's prayer book. Jews prayed a number of times a day, and most of their prayers were from the Psalms. And this got translated into multiple church traditions that pray a number of times a day. And a lot of those prayers come from the Psalms. So the idea of sharing our feelings is right there in scripture, and it addresses our limbic system and our right brain because it's connecting with our feelings and bringing them to God. You don't have to do it right from the Psalms. You could do your own journaling. You could do other exercises like that. So my challenge to you, my invitation to you rather, is ask God what he is inviting you into. Listen to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit inviting you into in prayer? Is he asking you to spend you know, a little more time sharing how you feel with him, listening to him, hearing his feelings talk to you. One of the things my spiritual director recommends to me often is try to write down what you think God is feeling about you at the moment. If you could put into words the feeling you're sensing from God. Sometimes it's hard to get words for what you think God is saying, but it's easier, at least for me, to recognize a little bit about how God is feeling towards me right now and writing that down. And the re one of the reasons I encourage people to not take my word for the amount of time they should spend or what they should be doing, um, although I'm being somewhat prescriptive here, just know that this is part of many options that you could have of how you spend your time with God. But when I was younger and the kids were really young, I had read this book about uh, prayer and this pastor was making the case for you know, Christian leaders spending three hours a day in prayer. And I wasn't a leader at the time. I had a corporate job and um, I had two little kids. And yet I was so moved by the book. I was like, oh, I'm going to pray two hours a day and see the kind of results that this guy saw. So I committed to praying two hours a day and failed miserably. Then I had a dream. God speaks to me in dreams sometimes. Um, so I had this dream and in my backyard, I was putting up this tent and this tent was so big that it didn't fit in my backyard. And we had a pretty big yard. We had a corner lot. And I was putting it up with a friend of mine named Dave. Um, and the tent got so big, it went across the street and into my neighbor's yard. And I'm like, this is way too big for my yard. And then I realized in the dream that this was not my tent. This tent belonged to my friend Dave. He was the one helping me put it up. And Dave was a church planter, still is. He's planted a number of churches. And what God was saying to me is, you know what, you, this tent is your prayer life, right? You want it to be this big, but it's not your calling. It's Dave's calling, right? This is too much for you right now. You need to spend time with your kids. You need to spend time with your wife. So at that time, I was going for more than I should have. But fast forward 10 or 15 years, um, and I had another dream. And this time it was the opposite story. And in this dream, I was trying to learn how to play, I was trying to play the violin, and it was really small, and every time I'd get a tune, it was so small, it would fall down. 
And so then this maestro comes up, uh, old, old guy with white hair. At the time, I thought he was old. Now he's probably my age. But, <laughs> um, so he comes up, he takes my violin from my hand, and he goes, he tries, tries to tune it, and he goes, oh, you have outgrown this. This is way, way too small for you. And then he said, you need to ask your father for a bigger violin. So let's, let's unpack this dream. In real life, my father um, desperately wanted to, me to learn to play the violin. And I couldn't. I don't have a very good musical ear. I don't know how, well, Salmon got it from his mother, not from me. Um, so I couldn't play the violin. But it was my father's heart for me. So my father's heart for me is to play the violin. So you, you get that symbolism, right? And then the violin is my prayer life. And so as I was playing, it was too small. And I knew it right away because I knew that my prayer life wasn't going so well because every time I would get, start to connect with God, I would have to go because I was only putting in like about 10, 15 minutes a day, right? And you know, if you think about it, right, if you meet a friend for coffee at Starbucks every day for 15 minutes, how satisfying is that going to be? Right? You barely say hello, and then you have to go. You know, it's, it's not very satisfying. So, um, so at that time, God was saying, you need more than 15 minutes. And um, so I knew that every time I'd started to play, every time I started to pray something, I would have to, it, it wouldn't be satisfying because then I'd have to go. And then what he says is, ask your father for a bigger violin. And I knew what he was saying, that I needed to ask God for grace to pray longer. Because I had tried to pray longer before, and it didn't work. Right? I needed grace to pray longer. We pray by the grace that is given us. And so I needed to ask God for the grace to pray more. So I started asking the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, Lord, what, what are you inviting me into? And I was surprised at what he was saying. I was like, God, I can't pray 45 minutes. That's way too long. And then I felt like God said, do it in increments. And, you know, God did this really funny way. I was listening to a radio, uh, a radio show, and the guy said that he started to pray for like an hour a day by putting his alarm clock one minute uh, earlier uh, every week. I'm not saying do that, right? But what I'm saying is that I got the idea that it should be done in increments. And so I started to pray for five minutes of grace more every day, uh, like per week. So then I would pray for five minutes, go for 15 minutes to 20, uh, try that for a week, and then if it starts to feel life-giving, then I go again and do it again, right? So I do that over and over until I got to the 45 minutes. And so uh, ask the Holy Spirit, and then um, ask him for what the goal is, and then work towards it in increments. But I do want to say one thing. I've mentored people in prayer for like 20 years, and... Their obstacles are numerous, but they tend to fall into certain categories. And you know, maybe some other time we can talk about that. But there are answers. If you are stuck, if prayer is not life-giving for you, talk to somebody. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to one of the pastors at the church. You know, talk to your spiritual director. There is help out there. You know, if your marriage is not going well, you don't just like grit your teeth. You go get help, right? If your prayer life is not going well, Get help. There are answers out there. God wants you to have a life-giving prayer life. It's not meant to be a grit-your-teeth kind of thing. You know, I, I hate this, this analogy of, like, people tell me, oh, well, you know, prayer, uh, having your prayer time is kind of like going to the gym. You go do it because you have to, and later you feel good, and it's good for you. And I'm like, really? So 
when you go to have dinner with your wife every day, you say, honey, going to have dinner with you, coming to have dinner with you is like going to the gym. It feels like I have to do it, and I feel after, good afterwards because it's good for me. I mean, hello, right? We definitely don't want that to be the case in our relationship with God. We want it to be a joy-giving, life-giving relationship. And if that's not the case, then we talk to somebody, just like if your marriage, okay, yes, if your marriage is not going well for a day or two or three and you're upset or you're preoccupied, maybe you push through it and you have dinner and you smile and you try to talk and your spouse is understanding, hopefully. But if it's like that for two or three weeks, you go get help, right? You don't just let it go, and you don't accept that this is the way it's going to be, right? And so it's the same thing with our prayer life. That's what I want to encourage you to do. So I want to close with um, this quote from Bowlby. Remember the father of attachment science? He says, throughout adult life, the availability of a responsive attachment figure remains the source of a person's feeling secure. All of us, from the cradle to the grave, are happiest when life is organized as a series of excursions, long or short, from the secure base. But I think the Holy Spirit would write it a little bit differently. Here's what I think the Holy Spirit would write. I think he would say, throughout adult life, the availability of God as a responsive attachment figure remains the source of a person's feeling secure. All of us, from the cradle to the grave, are happiest when life is organized as a series of excursions, long or short, from our time spent in God's loving presence in prayer.